Welcome to the FBCLB podcast, where you'll find the preaching of Dave Delaney, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Long Beach. Thanks for listening. Psalms chapter 62 and verse number 1. If you found your place, and if you're willing and able, would you stand with me? Out of respect for the reading of God's Word, Psalms chapter 62, verse number 1. Down to verse number 12. Truly, my soul waiteth upon God. From Him cometh my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will ye imagine mischief against a man? Ye shall be slain all of you as a bowing wall shall ye be and as a tottering fence they only consult to cast him down from his excellency they delight in lies they bless with their mouth but they curse inwardly selah my soul wait thou only upon god For my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times. Ye people, pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely, men of low degree are vanity, and men of high degree are a lie. To be laid in, to be laid in the balance, they are altogether lighter than vanity. Trust not in oppression, and become not vain in robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart upon them. And God hath spoken once, twice, have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God, and also unto thee, O Lord, belongeth mercy. For thou renderest to every man according to his work. Our Heavenly Father, use your word tonight, and in your Son's name we pray. And all the church said together, Amen. Thank you for standing, you may be seated. I love how unique people are. I love how different one individual is from the other. We talked a little bit about that on Sunday morning this last week. We all possess different loves, different passions, different interests. Every person in the, in the world is wired a little different from another person in the world. We look different. Aren't you thankful for that? We think different. We sound different. It seems like the more I live and the more people that I get to know, the more different we all really are. Every person in this room is 
different from every other person in the room. We all have our own individual, unique identity given to us from God Almighty. We believe every person is made in the unique image of God. You want to see what God looks like? Look around the room. Want to see what God is like? Look around the room. And at the same time, all of us being completely unique at the same time, the more I get to know people, the more we are all awfully alike. That even though in one sense, the more people you get to know, the more different we really all are. And at the same time, the more people you get to know, there are a lot of similarities. We all have thoughts. We just don't all have the same thoughts. We all have feelings, but we don't all have the same feelings. We all have passions, but we don't all have the same passions. We may have similar thoughts, feelings, or passions, but, but they aren't the same as the other person around us. And although we all have a different story, and although we are all individually created by God, we do all have a story, and we all are created by God. And every person in this room, and every story of every person I've ever met includes pain. Admittedly, some have more pain in their story than others, but every person that I've ever encountered, as I've listened to their story, as we've had serious conversations, their story has some element of pain or trial or difficulty or suffering in it. Now, one Bible commentator said it this way, we all walk with a limp in this fallen world. Every person does. The most spiritual person that you can think of, even that person in their story has an element of pain or trial or hurt to it. Just like yours does, just like mine does. Our souls in that regard are the same. All of us at one time or another have been shaken to our very core. And the psalmist David is no different than that. This is what the Psalms teach us, that David is someone who experiences similar passions, similar temptations, similar trials that we have all experienced just the same. David was a spirited man, that is for sure, but David was also a shaken man. This is what's being evidenced in this passage here, that before he writes this passage, there is a sense in which David feels as if he is being greatly moved, as if he's a leaning wall about to topple over, as if he's just hanging on to the edge, just barely clinging on to life. You ever felt that way? And David gives us a strong exhortation. That in a moment where you're filled with trouble or pain or hurt or going through a trial, that you are not alone in the trial. That God is with you. But this understanding of God being with us even in the pain, 
This understanding does not come naturally to David, and this understanding does not come naturally to me and to you. So it plays out in four ways in the text. Notice first, David's trouble. This is really verse 3. This is verse 4. This is verse 9, and this is verse 10. Look at it in verse 3. How long will ye imagine mischief against man? And ye shall be slain, all of you. As a bowing wall shall ye be, and as a tottering fence, and they only cast, they only consult to cast down, uh, to cast him down from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. I mean, they say one thing on the outside, but they feel and experience something else altogether on the inside. And the Bible teaches us why they are this way. This is verse number nine, because ultimately they are men of low degree. They're they're men full of vanity or emptiness or self-righteousness. They're men of low degree and men of high degree. So even people who think or look or appear as if they have it all together, they are actually a lie. Do you see that in verse number 9? Men of low degree are vanity and men of high degree are a lie. Anyone who thinks they have it all together or wouldn't do what that person just did, that person is lying to themselves. That's what it says. They're to be laid in the balance, David says, and altogether lighter than vanity. And in the end, when you take all these things and you stack them up, what is it anyway? It's nothing. It's empty. It's frivolous. That's the word vanity. what the word vanity means. So David encourages us then, verse 10, trust not in oppression. Become not vain in robbery. If your riches increase, set not your heart upon them. So even when it's going good or even when it's going bad, this is not where we put our hope. These are, this is not the area that we place our trust. There are enemies in David's life who are seeking to tear him down. And in doing so, they're spreading lies about him. You say, well, pastor, why are they doing that? David's been promised to be set upon the throne of Israel. And how many of you know, not everyone was happy about David's said promotion. Some people find it very difficult to be happy for other people when things go good for them. You ever met somebody like that? You're sitting next to us. No, don't, 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 don't. We won't ask someone. And so because they are not happy about this promotion that David has been giving, they begin attacking David. And yet David is clear. David's had time of oppression, verse 10. And David's now having time of riches, verse 10. And he didn't set his heart on riches. And he didn't set his heart in oppression. He didn't just go, well, this is the way it has to be. And then he didn't go, yes, my life is finally fulfilled. David said, I've set my heart on the Lord. And yet David here is at a point where he is clearly weak. That's the image being given to you and to me. Verse number three, the, the, the bowing wall, the tottering fence. They're, they're gathering together to only figure out ways of which they can pull David down. So they're attacking David when he is weakest. He's experiencing some sort of trial in his life. He is the leaning wall. He is the bowing fence. And he's just barely hanging on. And often, when we are weak, that's when the attack is the strongest. It's no accident. It's no accident that while the wall is leaning and while David is clinging and while David is weak, it's no accident that the adversary then chooses to attack. 
We have an adversary, and he is no dummy. This is the way he works. You remember Jesus tempted 40 days in the wilderness, and then the three great temptations come after Jesus has fasted and prayed those said 40 days in the wilderness? Man, then the adversary shows up. After 40 days, not on the first day. Remember Elijah? It's after the great working on Mount Carmel. It's there. Man, it's then when he feels doubt. He feels discouragement. He feels frustration. He feels alone. It's after a great victory. When we are weak, we are weak. When we are tired, we are weak. And our adversary uses our frailty against us. That's what David is communicating in this passage. In fact, this, this, is, a, this, is, a mili- this is a rule of military warfare. You attack when your adversary is weak. And you attack him where he is weakest. You don't attack him when he's strong. And you don't attack him where he's strongest. You wait for him to be weak. You find out his weakness. And then you go after it. And it is no different in the spiritual realm. Why are they attacking David now? Because David is down. But what this passage shows us is David may be down, but David is not out. Our adversary uses our weakness, but our adversary, man, our adversary never asks for forgiveness. Some Bible Bible commentators think this was actually David writing this about his interaction with Saul. How Saul, man, he looked after David, was jealous toward David, went, went strong, went very hard at David. And sometimes what we think is the way that the situation will be remedied is that God will so work in the heart of the attacker that he will cause our attacker, this person who is lying about us, this person who is manipulating us, this person who is hurting us, he will cause them to see the error of their way. He will change their heart, will uproot their life, and then they will apologize and everything will be better. Just so you know, that rarely happens. The offender rarely ever apologizes. Normally, they just find a way to justify why they said what they said. Normally, they find a way to rationalize it. And that's what they have to do. They have to justify it. They have to rationalize it this way in order to be able to live with their own conscience. This is the same thing happening here. But they delighted in lies. They got together to only bring down someone who was of excellency. He was a, it's a good-spirited man. That's what, that's what the, the word excellency means. They got together, conspired, told lies, and now they're revealed for having been the liars that they were on the inside. It's shown on the outside. But you see no white flag of surrender. You see no issued apology. Instead... They're blaming David for why they said what they said. Well, the reason they mistreated you was because it was your own fault. And what ends up happening is that hostility is now projected onto the person where that hostility was shown. That's certainly true of Saul and David in 1 Samuel chapter 22. But but stay with me on this point. What if the offender did own up to it? Would it all be better now? Could could the lies spread ever be unspread? Could the things done ever be undone? 
Would the feelings ever actually be restored or mended? Absolutely not. I mean, after Saul picks up his spear and tries to put David on the wall, I'd have to imagine Thanksgiving dinner was a little awkward the next year, don't you think? Like, I just don't see him and his father-in-law really getting along on the best of terms after that sort of event, do you? And yet, oftentimes, this is what we're holding on to. That the destruction that this person caused, that this person can also cause restoration. And what David is saying is, regardless of whether this person ever seeks forgiveness, it's regardless whether this person ever asks for uh, issues and apology, it's regardless of whether this person ever sees the harm they did, real restoration, real building, real moving forward and maturing is not done in human terms. It's only accomplished in spiritual terms. Humans have a unique ability to destroy. Only God has the ability to restore. So we see David's trouble. He's frail. His adversary is attacking him when he's weak, spreading lies about him, trying to tear him down. His adversary never asks for forgiveness. You won't find it anywhere on the pages of Scripture where Saul ever issues David an apology. And yet David is able to move on from that. How so? Verse number two, David's trust. David's trust is seen in verse number one, verse number two. It's also seen in five, six, and seven. Look at it in verse one. Truly my soul waiteth upon God. From him, God, cometh my salvation. He, God, is my rock and my salvation. He, God, is my defense, and I shall not be greatly moved. David's David's, David's trust is building. Look at verse 5. My soul, wait thou only upon God. From, from him is my, from my expectation is from him. He only is my rock, my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. And God is my salvation, my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. So, eight, trust in him at all times. It really builds then, doesn't it? You see the difference in verse number two and verse uh, verse number two and verse number six. At the initial reading, you probably don't catch the difference in verse two and six, but there is a difference, isn't there? There's a word omitted in verse six that was added in verse number two. Verse number two: "I shall not be greatly moved." But David is writing verse 2 as if, I'm going to be moved. I'm going to take a loss in this battle. And then look at verse number 6 as his trust builds, his confidence grows, his expectations in God. Now look at verse number 6. I shall not be moved. But at first, David is hoping, I, just don't, I don't want to be greatly moved. I just don't want to be knocked all the way over there. Now David's confidence growing. David says, no, now that I consider God is my glory, my rock, my salvation, my defense, my fortress, with God doing this for me, I shall not be moved at all. David has found God to be a rock, God to be a fortress, God to be salvation. But is that all David has found God to be? David does not just point to God and say, there is a rock. There is, a, is, a, is, is salvation. There is a defense. There 
is a fortress. David doesn't just point to God and say that. There's a qualifier to it, isn't there? Look at the qualifier. It's not just God is, as in David is pointing to God is a rock. God is a fortress. God is these things. The, the qualifier is the word my. God is not just a rock. God is my rock. God is not just salvation. God is my salvation. God is not just defense. He's my defense. He's not just, he's not just hope. He's my hope. He's not just glory. He's my glory. He's not just strength. He's my strength. He's not just a refuge. He is my refuge. The qualifier. It's all over the place. You'll see the word my used from the top to the bottom of the psalm. It's all the difference in the world. It's the difference in having peace and just pointing to what peace looks like. It's the difference in having joy and pointing to what joy looks like. It's the difference of knowing you're loved and pointing to what love might look like. It's the difference in knowing it and pointing to it. And when you're simply pointing to it, you have no part of it. I mean, you know what it looks like, but it, it's not yours. You can identify it, but you certainly don't feel it. And you might, be, you might be quick to point it out to others, but man, you are not living it out yourself. It's like if I were to turn on the evening news tonight and hear that someone's great aunt and uncle had passed away and left them an inheritance of $50 million. And man, they're now receiving this inheritance of $50 million of which they were not expecting to receive and how their life is going to be so transformed. Frankly, I don't care if they're getting $50 million. But if the news story begins, David Delaney is set to inherit $50 million. Oh, now, I really care about that story. Why? Why, if I hear the news of $50 million being inherited by someone else, it doesn't really matter to me, and the news that I've actually inherited $50 million, that matters to me. Why? And here is it, the same qualifier David is using because of the word my. It's not just an inheritance, it's my inheritance. He's my rock, he's my salvation, he's my defense, he's my strength, he's my refuge, he's my glory. God is these things, yes, but David doesn't just know that God is this, David knows that God is this to him. It's like looking at stained glass from the outside in. If you look at stained glass on the outside of the glass, the shapes are not defined. The colors are muted. You probably see very little beauty. You get very little comfort from it. You get very little encouragement from the stained glass, if that's the case. But when you look at the stained glass from the inside, man, then the picture is brilliant. Then the colors, man, they're snapping. 
Man, then it's a beautiful, comforting thing. And this is what David is saying. I am not looking at God from the outside in. I know God on the inside. God is a rock. God is a refuge. God is a defense. And he's not just these things that I look at from the outside. He is mine. They belong to me. I know the beauty. I see it. I felt the reality of it. And I know the comfort from it. But my is not the only qualifier in the verse, is it? There's another word, the word seen as truly. Or in verse number six, the word seen as only. Or in verse two, the word seen as only. David does not view God as one of several options. This is a very important point for us to pick up on. God is not one of many. David trusts in God alone. It's not, it's not God and, it's simply God alone. This is teaching us something about the exclusivity that God demands. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. If there is any peace and suffering, if there's any hope in a trial, if there's any joy that does come or is a result of pain, it must be because we trust in God alone. David is, in this sense, refusing to hedge his bets. He's all in on God. That's what he's saying. He's placing all of his trust on God. He's staking all of his life on God. He sees God as, as his only hope. This is true for us, more modern people, right? We don't have a problem in trusting in God. We just have a problem trusting in God alone. Sure, we trust in God as long as I also get this job. Sure, I trust in God as long as this relationship goes my way. Sure, I trust in God as long as the economy doesn't look like this. Well, sure, I trust in God as long as I don't get this diagnosis. Sure, I trust in God. We don't have trouble trusting in God. We have trouble trusting in God alone. There's, there's something natural inside of all of us that desires to trust in God. But we like to use God as the backup plan. We like to see him as the insurance policy. Even on our currency, we put things like, in God we trust. Do you remember when 9-11 happened? Horrific day. Do you remember what happened on September the 12th? Congressmen, senators, both parties, all gathering on the Capitol steps, praying to God and singing, God bless America. Well, that quickly faded, didn't it? Because it was the backup plan. That David is waiting on God alone. It's a, it's a great image he gives us here. Of the leaning wall, the bowing fence, or the, the, the bowing wall, the, the leaning fence. Now David recognizes that it cannot be one foot on solid ground and the other foot on quicksand. This is, this is when I work. Go one foot on solid ground and the other on quicksand, and it's a sure thing that you will quickly fall and stumble. 
The, the foot on quicksand will eventually go under, and when it does, the foot on solid ground is lost. That's why David uses the word truly or, or only or verily. My soul waiteth on God. Then in verse 2, he only, God only is this. He's only my rock, and he only is my salvation, and he only is my defense. He, he continues with it in verse number five. Man, I only wait upon God. My expectation is from him. And not him and the promotion, not him and the job, not him and the relationship, just him. So my soul then, he says, verse five, wait upon the Lord. Trusting in the Lord did not come easy for David. And if we were honest tonight, trusting in the Lord does not come easy for us. Even David is struggling and now he's talking to himself. Anybody in the room ever talk to themselves? If you didn't raise your hand, you're not telling the truth. Because even when I asked that question, you were like, no, I don't talk to myself. Do I? Do I ever talk to you? Do you ever talk to me? Look at verse 5. David isn't talking to anyone. This isn't a prayer. David isn't standing up in front of the congregation. He gets there in a moment. He begins addressing the, conversation, the congregation in a second. And even in this prayer, he is not talking to God. He talks to God at the very end. The last two, actually the last verse is when David finally addresses the Lord. Up until this point, David is only addressing or talking to himself. My soul, wake thou upon God. David is giving himself a pep talk. You say, I went to church yesterday. Oh, well, yeah, what did you learn? I learned that I need to talk to myself more often. David is talking to himself. He's reminding himself to trust in God. He's reminding himself to wait on God. He's reminding himself to find hope in God. Why? Because it was clearly a need in David's life to do so. And sometimes for you and for me, when we face difficulty or we get bad news or we start doubting, man, sometimes we're very hard on ourselves. And instead of reminding ourselves to trust in the Lord, we begin talking down to ourselves, saying things like, well, you should have known better anyway. This is probably what you get. And God's not listening to you anyway. And he's a defense for everybody else, but he's in defense for you because you and me both know what we did last night. And yet, what this passage t teaches us is we all live with corrupted flesh. We live in a fallen world. And even the most mature Christian has seasons of struggle and doubt and fears. And the only thing you can do is talk to yourself. Hey, listen, heart, be of cheer. Trust in the Lord. Wait on God. We would do well to learn from David in this sense. Next to verse 6 and 7, I wrote, talk to yourself more often. Talk to yourself more often. My wife always says, it's not a problem, David, if you talk to yourself. It's only a problem when you begin answering yourself that I will have a concern. 
And David talks to himself and answers himself. Look what he does. My soul, wait thou only upon God. My expectation is from him. And now listen to it as it builds. David's just stacking arguments, right? One on top of the other. He only is my rock. He's my salvation. He's my defense. I, I shall not be moved. Now he's even persuaded himself in the argument. He's moved positionally in the argument. The beginning of the argument, I will not be greatly moved. I will, I will take a big loss here. Now, as he's begin talking to himself, doing this heart talk, man, now he says, I will not be moved at all. Verse number seven then, God is my salvation and my glory and the rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times. I mean, it's one right after the other. David is playing whack-a-mole with his doubts. Trust in God. God's my defense. God is my strength. I mean, one right after the other. And David is reassuring himself of who God is. David is reassuring himself of all that God desires to do. Number three, though, David's triumph. Look at verse number eight. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Trust in him at all times. Why? Because God is relevant at all times. Trust in him at all times. And then David's adversaries saw the wicked and hurt that they had caused and done, and they repented before him and turned their hearts to God, Selah. Is that what verse 8 says? If that's what your copy says, you have the wrong copy, okay? No. As a matter of fact, you read the entire passage, there's no indication of that ever happening. Now David goes on then, here's his triumph. Now ye people, now he's addressing everyone else. Now ye people, pour out your heart before him. And God is a refuge for us. So many times we burden ourselves because we don't want to add a burden to someone else. So many times we trouble ourselves because we, don't, because we don't want to trouble anyone else. We try to keep it all together. We try to carry our own problem. We try to handle our own situation. And very rarely do we ever find ourselves pouring out our hearts before anyone, much less pouring our hearts out to God. Why? Because pouring out your heart is so personal, isn't it? Now here's David's advice to you and to me. When you're under attack, when you feel like the leaning wall, when you're barely hanging on, when the fence is about to go down, go to God and pour out your heart. The reasons we don't do this is because we tend to overestimate our own strength, and we tend to underestimate God's attention. We tend to underestimate God's comfort. We tend to underestimate God's care. It's to cast all your care upon him, the New Testament says. Why? Well, why should I cast all of my care on him? Why should I go to God at all times? And why should I pour my heart out to God? Because God cares for you, that's why. O ye people, pour out your hearts before him. God is our refuge, Selah. They say the word Selah means breathe or rest. Maybe it's a musical note. They aren't certain. But if it is a musical note, if it does mean rest or breathe, 
then is there a more divinely placed sila in all of the Bible? Now pour out your heart to God and then rest. Pour out your heart to God and then breathe. It's greatly helped to David. It took him from, I will not be greatly moved, to I shall not be moved at all. And then the last one, David's truth, you see it in two ways, verse 11 and verse 12. God has spoken once, twice have I heard this. Power belongeth unto God. That David is surrounded by what appears to be very powerful men. And David could have given in to the illusion that these men who are surrounding him are the ones with real power. And yet, David is fully aware that they have no power at all. This is the same truth that Jesus talked about when Pilate said, Will you not beg me for your life? I have the power to set you free, and I have the power to send you to the cross. And what does Jesus say? You would have no power at all, except it were given to you by God my Father. It's a great recognition. Power belongeth to God. Power belongeth to to God. And not to congressmen and senators, power belongeth to God. Not to authority figures and leaders, power belongeth to God. Not to military might, power belongeth to God. Not to the gossip or the critic, power belongeth to God. Power belongeth unto God and God alone. But it's not all belongs to God, is it? Look what belongs to God. Power belongeth unto God, and also unto thee. Verse 12. O Lord, belongeth mercy. God is a strong wall, but God is not cold stone. That God is strong, but God is also tender. That God is firm, but God is gracious. This is probably my favorite line in the whole sermon that I wrote, so here it is. God is a fortress, and God is a friend. All power belongeth to him, and all mercy belongeth to him. If God is just all power, then we have reason to be afraid. But if God is all power, and God is, and belongs to God all mercy, then we are invited to run to Him in our time of need, and He will in no wise cast you out. Why? Why will He not cast me and you out? Ultimately, the reason He does not cast us out but invites us in is because He cast His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, out. On our behalf. And God who had all power. Set his power down. Came to earth. Lived a perfect sinless life. Died on the cross. And then rose from the grave. To invite us in. To show us his mercy. To help us understand his love for us. And God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That the God with all the power in all the universe gave his son for you and for me. Power belongeth unto God. Mercy belongeth unto God. Pour out your heart 
unto the Lord, O ye people. And then that's how the chapter ends. Don't you want to know? Well, what'd you do next? Did you go to the office or did you not go to the office? Did, did you find that neighbor? Did you run him down? Did you set him straight? Man, you really have a sense from David. He just said, I'll just wait on God to take care of all that, don't you? God will take care of that. Hey, listen, God is really good at doing his job. He doesn't need me and you. He doesn't need me and you to pretend like we're him. He's really good at doing his job, trust me. So wait, wait I say on the Lord. 